read a little bit in Acts 17, starting in verse 22. We pray for the Spirit's guidance. Our Lord and our God, as we open your your book of life again, and uh, we study the, the life of the early church, Lord, I just pray again that, that you enlighten us. Give us a, a measure of maturity as believers that we need to follow the pattern of the early church and how the church started and how it succeeded. We pray for that, Lord. I pray that you guard my words. I pray that you open our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 17, starting in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Arapachus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. But therefore you worship as unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You may be seated. As I started to work on this sermon, I was going to recap a little bit on Acts 17 and then step right into Acts 18, but after 10 pages of recapping, I thought I better just keep it at Acts 17. Again, we're, we're studying the, the early church, how the church, the church of Jesus Christ started in this world, the church as we know it. And one thing we know, it worked. It worked. What the apostles did, what the early disciples did, worked. Even the enemies of the church, they said, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. They are shaking up the world. They are changing the culture. They were successful. Why? Why were they successful? Well, it started with their eschatology. They had an eschatology of victory. They knew that God's church would advance and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So they understood their purpose on this earth which was to disciple the nations as they were commanded to do, to redeem the nations, to redeem them for Jesus Christ. These men knew that God created the heavens and the earth. And because he was creator God, he lays claim to all the earth, all men in the earth, all kings, all rulers, all laws, everything. They're his. And he is a jealous God. He won't share his glory with another. 
And they also understood if there was a conflicting worldview, it was tyranny against Jesus Christ if it convicted with the laws of God. And they, as his ambassadors, knew that they must confront the evil of the day. They knew that they had the duty to their king to redeem men and nations for his glory. And they understood there would be a lasting effect of what they did. A lasting effect in this present world and a lasting effect in the redeemed world to come. What they did mattered. That responsibility does not change. We as their, as believers, we have been given the same command, take dominion. So what has changed in us? Why are we not taking the culture? Why is the culture wagging the church? I believe it's because our eschatology has been tainted. And because we have an eschatology of failure or stepping back that Jesus Christ isn't Lord of all things, it affects how we perform our callings. And it results in us not taking dominion as we are commanded to do. In fact, many times the churchmen are taught to stand on the sidelines that discipling the nation does not include discipling government. I've been told that by pastors. They have nothing to do with government or politics. That's a dirty practice. Stay away from it. So what they're saying is God does not reign in that area. This started, I believe it's based in the Gnosticism that Andy covered. It portrayed two types of gods. God of the Old Testament, God of the New. But it birthed the pietistic movement, which Fursell gave some good information on. Which causes believers to be stepping and sitting on the sidelines. Well, the culture, we don't have anything to do with that. We can't influence that. Instead of taking the culture and putting it under the submission of Jesus Christ and his rules, when we as his believers, his churchmen, step aside, who will make the rules? Well, the ungodly will gladly step in with their sinful ideas and pass them as laws. Then a new philosopher will come and say, well, what about this? Yeah, that, that sounds good, and pass them as laws. And more and more ungodliness comes into the culture, and many times it's unchecked. Because many in the church have been taught to stand by and let it happen. It's not our fight. 
And I believe that's why and that's where we are in America today. Do we see a godly culture around us? I can go through all the list of sins. I've gone through them how many times? Just turn the news on. And you tell me if this is a godly culture, if this is a culture being influenced by Jesus Christ and his saints. So how do we fix this fine mess we have gotten ourselves into? We must mature as believers. We must be like the Bereans and say, what we have taught, check it, and say with the Scriptures, is this so? Is this so? What we have been taught, is this truly what God teaches us to be as believers? And if it isn't, we have to accept and say, hey, we're wrong on that. Let's do something different. This isn't working, and it isn't according to God's law, or it's a partial, a partial of God's law. And many times when you take a partial of God's law, it becomes a falsehood because it isn't checked by the other teachings of the Scriptures. Again, I'd love to live by eat, drink, and be merry. I could do that my whole life, and I'd be good at it. That's biblical. But it's sinful if it's not checked by the rest of the Scriptures. So we must be willing to say, what have we done wrong? What do we do? need to do right? We must align ourselves with God's truths. Where does it start? Well, I'm glad you asked. Acts 17, 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Place. That's our leading line in evangelism. God made the world and everything in it, including you. He has the right of ownership. He has the right of authority to tell you how to live. He has the right to tell you every law, every precept you are to obey. He is the one true God, and he has ownership. You know, that's what Paul was preaching in Athens. To the common man. And when he went to the Arapachus, these higher people, the philosophers of the day, he didn't change his message. Matter of fact, he pretty much told me you're a bunch of dopes thinking you can make things to worship God, statues, this and that. But he's telling them all of you are nothing compared to God. None of your pagan efforts please God. And he can wipe you out in a minute. He has allotted periods and boundaries. That's what we must lead with in evangelism. 
You owe your worship to God. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Very clear, very precise. No conflict. We can add on to that. For in him we, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offsprings. We are made by God. We belong to God. We are his offspring. Which again results in him having legitimate rule over us. So again, number one for evangelism. You are created by God. God is the creator. Period. And yes, this conflicts with the world. Why do you think they push evolution so much? Oh, it's scientific. Yeah? Okay. Let's, let's Don't blow on the fur. Let's just get to the hide. What's scientific about it? There's a mud puddle. Over time, a man crawled out of the mud puddle. There's a mud puddle over here. And over time, a woman crawled out of the mud puddle and had all the parts to make more. That's scientific. Hard science. Anything else is foolishness. Isn't that what it boils down to? Yep, much of the church will accept it. So, yeah, well, we've got to fit it, evolution into this now because it's scientific. Hogwash. God made you and you're responsible to him. He is the creator, God, period. And when we have young men who are intelligent young men and they say, oh, you know, I'd like to be a scientist or I'd like to go into this. What does the church do? No, you've got to be a pastor. You're smart. No, have him be a scientist. Follow his calling. Prove these dopes wrong. All areas of life are God's. God made you, we're responsible to him. It's unconditional. Unconditional. What do we hear at times, though? What does our preaching say? I touched on this a while back. It leans toward the unconditional love toward God. That's a lot of open up. Well, God loves you, has a good plan for your life. They never talk about law, never talk about repentance. So what is that saying? It's saying, well, God's love is unconditional. Is it? Is it? What happens when... Somebody hears that, you know, when either it was an LDN or somewhere, I learned, you know, when you preach, you preach three messages. One sermon is three, three different sermons. So when you, you're preaching or trying to preach, it's the one that your audience is hearing. It's the actual sermon, the sermon that the, the Holy Spirit uses. You come to a sinner and you come to him and say, well, God loves you as a plan for your life. The sinner's going to say, well, I'm glad, glad God loves me, and I have a plan for my life, too. And my plan is I, I eat, drink, do whatever I want. But, but if God loves me, he's hearing, well, this is pretty good. Now I just keep doing what I want to do. But now I know I have eternal life because God loves me unconditionally. So why would I change anything? Why would he? 
We're not bringing up the law, which means you can't, we're not bringing up repentance. You know, I have a plan for my life. God, you know, my plan seems like God's happy with it because, you know, he loves me unconditionally. I'll just say that little prayer and go on living exactly as I want. No change. I just have eternity. Now, you think this doesn't happen? I have a sister that I try to witness to, and she's, her verse is God is love, so she can do whatever she wants. God will love her. Unconditionally. And she's been talking to my dad, even though he's been dead 15 years. I've witnessed guys at work, some of them the foulest people you ever want to meet. Strip clubs and everything go along with that every weekend. Many other sins. Talking about Christianity. Well, I'm already saved, they tell me. You're a Christian? Well, yeah, of course I am. When I was young, they told me that God loves me. And all I had to do was say that little prayer. So I know God loves me. No change in their life. But why would they? If they're already redeemed, if they're already saved because they can get by without changing a thing and live like hell, why would they want to repent? They already got eternity. What did Jesus say the Pharisees did? They went over land and sea to get a single convert. When they made a convert, they made him twice the son of hell. Why? Because they didn't convert him but the truth. No, I'm not God. I'm not saying this guy wasn't saved. I'm not saying my sister wasn't saved. But the Bible also says there should be evidence of faith. That there should be an outward change in somebody who's saved. I'm still waiting for that with my sister. I haven't seen this guy in a while. Maybe he has changed. But telling people that they are loved unconditionally by God. Are they? They are. They are. The scripture teaches us that they are. But it also teaches us there's three different types of God's love. Probably more. His benevolent love that he gives life. He's given this earth for all of us to live in. The very breath that we breathe. That's the love of God which relates closely to the beneficial love of God, his common grace given to all mankind. I mean, if your neighbor is a complete pagan and he grows apple trees and you do, and you do the same thing, he's going to get apples just like yours. The Common grace, the love of God, it's there. Yeah, God does love man unconditionally. But that's not the whole story. The third type of love theologians call the love of complacency. That doesn't mean that, you know, God is complacent, you know, just, oh, do what you want. In theological terms, it means that special love from God toward his son and those who are in his son or they are with his son, his saved. There's a special love for those who are saved, the adopted sons of God. 
This love is not given to the unrepentant. What does it say of the wicked and the unrepentant? There, he's abhorred by them. So yeah, God does love the unsaved. That's part of God's love. But we as mature believers must carry it further and give the whole story. Because you know what? His plan for them, I think, is a little different than their plan. What is God's plan for those who do not repent? Mark nine forty seven. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm never dies and the fire is not quenched. That's God's plan for the unrepentant. Do you see how we have to have the depth of the knowledge of the Scriptures to give the whole story? And that leads to the next point in our evangelism. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. If you're going around telling people that God loves them, and you don't bring up repentance, you're telling them half the story, and you're not doing them any good. You may be sealing their damnation. I mean, God will save them no matter what if he wants them. But we're not telling them the full gospel message. All people everywhere are to repent. Repent. Turn from God. There is no forgiveness of sins without repentance. And that is what the early church taught, and that is what worked. Paul stood here and told these so-called wisest men in the world, these Athenian philosophers who stood around talking around, like I said, what they stood around talking about new ideas every day, that's all they did. And Paul walked up to them and told them, repent, you're under God's authority. Repent, all people everywhere. You say, well, it's so bad in America, we can't say that. Excuse me, almost. Uh, Yeah, we can say it. We can say it. You think Paul and his friends had a better environment than we do in their preaching? It was far more pagan. It was far more evil. Child prostitution, temple worship, offering babies to Baal. It was far worse. But Paul stood his ground and said, you need to repent because he was under the authority of God and he had the power to tell him that. It was God's power that works when we use the full gospel message. And it did work. It redeemed many of these cultures. And it has redeemed many of the cultures in the past throughout history. It redeemed the Dutch culture. When Christianity came, it was tribes killing paganism. Read it. 
the rise of the Dutch Republic. It was Christianity that brought that nation, redeemed not only the people, the souls, but the whole culture to be some of the greatest merchants in the world. You know, the command to us has not changed. It worked in Geneva with Calvin. They didn't know what to do with the police force because crime was not there. It worked in early America. Alexa Tocqueville said, it is a Christian culture, the Calvinistic teachings that the parents give their kids. That Christianity affects, affects all areas of life. In every calling, no matter what it is, whether it's a shoemaker, candle maker, it doesn't matter. It's all, if you're doing your calling, it's for the glory of God. And that is what changed the culture. I see the pietistic attitude talking to believers when I was in sales. There's many believers. But so many of them, oh, oh, it's the end times. It's going to get worse. We're in the last days. God will rapture us soon. Satan will have his reign. Everything we work for is gone. We'll be up in heaven, though, separated from our bodies, peacefully stroking harps. It's like Captain Kirk saying, beam me up, Scotty. I can't stand it down here. It's getting tough. Unfortunately, it's unbiblical. Popular, though. Unbiblical. Saints, we must not have a, a defeatist eschatology. We are commanded to be victorious. We will never be at our best if we think everything we're doing is for nothing. Let's bring it into modern day. Modern day parable. Purcell comes home Tells Tracy, we're having, a, we're having a meeting, family meeting. I know he has this because they have a trust set up and everything. We're, we're going to change this trust. Get all the kids together. And he says, well, we're going to build this, this fabulous compound. Houses, we're going to have streams. We're going to have houses for different family members. He says, this is going to be great. We're going to have hanging gardens, you know, everything. We're gonna, it's going to be like heaven on earth. The kids are sitting, well, yeah, but what do we got to do, Dad? And he says, well, I'm going to take all the finances from Gap and put it into it, and I want you guys to give 10% of everything you got and also give up your free time. I don't want you wasting any time. You're going to have to help me build this place. And they're, yeah, no, no. So the kids are thinking, well, yeah, well, you know, I don't know. And for sales, no, no, God really wants this. This is God's plan for us. The kids say, well, you know, at least, you know, it'll be a good inheritance. So, you know, they, so they come in and Abby comes in and says, Dad, can I see the plans? And he goes, yeah, here, lays out the plan. And Abby says, well, I'd like this, this house over here by the, by the chicken pens. You know, I kind of like watching them and that. And for uh, says, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Abby. What do you mean you want to live there? She says, well, yeah. That, she says, well, we're not building this here. We're not going to live here. He goes, what? No, we're not living here. You know, I want you guys to use all the best materials and everything but, but, and do your best, but we're not living here. 
Well, who's living here? Oh, that, that creep down the street, the one that ran over our dog last year and shot our cat, and has all those kids that are evil, that are in and out of jail all the time. We're going to hand it over to him. But I want you guys to work really hard. Give them the best. I know as kids, they'd say, Dad, you're, we're going to get people with a white coat. You're crazy. We're not doing that. Well, what are we telling our children about the church? Tithe? Put your effort into it. Work as hard as you can. Do your best for the Lord. And then we're going to turn it over to Satan. And we have no victory in the future here on earth. It's ridiculous. Why would our children even hang around the church? Or why would they put their best efforts for it? Or why would we put our best efforts for it if it's all for nothing here on earth? It's ridiculous. If that's a, isn't that what it's saying? We'll just give it to Satan, but we'll be up there with the harps. You know what? Death is abnormal for a Christian. Adam was not created to die. He was created to work and tend the garden forever with God. He had a task to do. Will we have tasks to do in a redeemed earth? I believe we will. And I believe what we do here even affects that new redeemed earth. We will not be living with Jesus, stroping harps, with just our soul floating around. That's an abnormal state of being for anybody. We will have resurrected bodies. We'll be reunited with our body. When God created Adam, he took the dust to the ground and breathed the soul into him. It was a symbiotic relationship. It was meant to be that way. He said his creation is good, very good. And we're to believe that God will take this very good creation, which centuries of Christians have been redeeming for the glory of Jesus Christ, and hand it over to Satan because some dope wrote a book a while back, The Great Late Planet Earth. We have to stick to what the scriptures say. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of of it. He is sitting at the right hand of God, ruling, and he will not step away from his throne and say, here you go, Satan. Oh, but it's getting so hard in America here. Big deal. Will our nation fail? It may. Many nations have failed in the past, but that does not mean that Jesus will pick up his miracles and say, that's it, I'm going back to heaven, let Satan have it. We are called, in spite of what happens here, to redeem the culture, to redeem souls. And if we walk around like many Christians do, because I spoke to them on a daily basis when I was doing sales, oh, it's all over, it's just going to get worse and worse. I don't even know why my child's planning a wedding, it probably won't happen. Think of what that's telling your children. That's like taking them to go fishing and 
put a, a, something on that doesn't have a hook on where they never catch anything, how enthused are they going to be? We are to subdue the earth, redeem the earth. And I'll guarantee you, we teach a victorious message that this fight means something. And yeah, it's a fight. There will be casualties. There will be difficulties. But that, that there will be victory for God in the end and for mankind and for our future generations. I've got to check where this rabbit trail started from. But Oh, yeah, with repentance. So let's get back on that trail. You know, repentance, that means it corresponds with the, God, with the laws of God, the rules, the restrictions, and judgment for disobeying these laws for life. So if we don't speak about repentance, they're right. Why even speak about the law? Now, it may seem that I'm bashing modern-day evangelism. Well, that is because I am. I am. And I'm not saying that many of these people aren't believers. And I'm not saying they may not get some true converts. But I believe it's immature if you don't preach the whole gospel of God. How could any so-called man of God tell people, just preach God's love and don't ever mention repentance or the law? Because the law, it's offensive to sinners. It offends people. We can't preach the law. You know, that's an element of truth in there. To preach God's love, there's an element of truth in there. But is it the full truth? Is it the full truth? You know, I had a trailer up in Maryland, Wisconsin, in the trout pond. About a block away, my oldest daughter, she's about three years old, four years old, I'd go up there and say, well, you want to go trout fishing, you know, we'd go toward evening. She'd go, sure, so we'd walk down there. And I'd look at her when she was three or four years old, and I'd say, where, do you, where should we fish, top or bottom? She'd look, she'd say, Dad, we've got to fish the top. There's trout coming up all over. Okay. We'd put a cork on, throw it out there, give her the pole, and she'd reel them in one right after another. There'd be people fishing on each side of us, fishing on the bottom. Keep fishing on the bottom, we'd get our limit, leave, go there the next day, the same thing. And I told the one guy, I said, well, they're biting on top, why don't you fish on Well, I, that's all we were taught, fish on the bottom. But that's how we are as humans. If we're taught something over time and time again, or somebody who has authority over us, probably their parents... We get in our mind, you know, I'm going to fish on the bottom. Now, trout, we'll, they'll catch them on the bottom. But to catch them in between, they'll catch them on top. And the facts are, the fact was, they're feeding on top. This is a better way to do it. Now, believers are taught, oh, just preach God's love, nothing else. Can't change it. That's how we were taught. It isn't working. There's more to the gospel. Get the full story. We've got to be willing to change people. 
We've got to be like the Bereans and look at the Scriptures and say, what does God's Word teach? And we have to be mature enough to accept it then. Again, we get elements of truth. Well, nobody's ever been saved by the law. Another true statement. Again, you know, God is love. Yeah, he is love. He's also a consuming fire. Which one do you want to go with? We have to be able to discern and say, yeah, you're right. The law never saves anybody. But what is the law designed, designed to do? Romans 3.20, for by the, law, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. See, they had it right. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law was designed for sinners. It gives them the knowledge of sin. Without the law, the gospel message is senseless and useless. It brings people to the repentance, the knowledge of their sins. To the need of a savior. The need that they know they're a lawbreaker. They know that they're enemies of God. And God will judge the world in righteousness. There will be consequences for those who will not repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising them from the dead. Paul here was telling these pagan rulers, these pagan philosophers, the common man, the Jews, everybody he preached to, they are accountable to Jesus Christ and there are consequences. And he, Jesus Christ is exclusive. He's the one. He's the one in charge. And he has authority to be in charge. And he has the authority over all men who must repent. Who must repent. People, we see our nation crumbling around us. And much to blame is to this pietistic movement that thinks, oh, I'm just going to be holy and then I'll be raptured up and I'll be up with Jesus Christ strung on my harp. Well, everything all the Christians for centuries built goes down the tubes. Is that pleasing to God? We are commanded to take dominion Restore the earth to God's glory. Redeem the earth for the glory of God. Roll back the sin that has affected all creation. That's our job. Our job is not to be sitting disembodied in an abnormal state of being, stringing a harp. Or plucking a harp, I guess, would be the proper word. 
The great resurrection is when our souls are reunited with our body and we will be on this new heaven and in this new earth, the redeemed earth. Our duty is to start that redemption now. Eschatology of victory. That's what the early church had, and it worked. It turned the world upside down, as the enemies said. Why don't we try doing that? Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, I pray that you give us an eschatology of victory that it's your power through your true gospel message, your written word, that transforms not only hearts but nations and culture. Lord, we're commanded to be the culture carrier of a nation. Teach us to be an offense to those who are perishing. Your gospel is the order of stench to those who refuse it. Expect that people will not like you, will resent you, It's because they resent you, O Heavenly Father. They are rejecting you. In good times and bad times, our message must be the same. Our God is in authority. He rules over you. He's not asking you to repent. He's demanding you repent. Or there will be consequences. And yes, those consequences are hell. Lord, teach us to be bold yet loving. In Jesus' name, amen.